Bible Chapel. We're so happy to see you here today. There's a lot of new faces that I haven't seen in a while. That's really exciting. Um, we just want to welcome you here to church, whether you're here in the building or online with us. A couple of announcements. In a couple of weeks, small groups are going to be starting back up. Bible studies, gatherings, all that kind of stuff is going to be starting back up. We're really excited for that. And on our website, you'll be able to sign up for that very soon. So keep an eye out. Second thing, if you take out your phone right now, 
and text the word bulletin to the number that's behind me, you're gonna get the bulletin in about a minute. It takes about a minute to get to your phone. But that has, not only does it have Zach's uh, outline for today, but it has a ton of really useful information. So we'd really recommend you do that. It's just like the old paper bulletin we used to give out. And with that, folks, thank you. Continue to worship with us.
sing this with me. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord, and it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your You give life. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken.
Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. From those of us gathered here in this place to those that are watching online, we thank you that we can all come together as one body of Christ from all uh, different backgrounds and life circumstances, all different hurts and struggles, all coming together to praise your holy name, Father. God, may we find our comfort in you. May we find our strength in you. May we find our peace in you. May we find our purpose, our joy, our everything in you. Father, we exist. We exist to worship you. Our purpose in life is to actually worship you. So may you be glorified today in all that we do and all that we say. You are worthy of it all. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things and everyone said together, amen. Praise God. Hey, before you sit down, would you uh, just greet each other in the name of the Lord, socially, distantly, obviously, if you want to text each other, if you want to send each other a virtual high five or a hug, whatever you want to do, we'll be back with you in a second. Some of, you, uh, might, might, some of you might blame it on COVID. I do remember when we were building this place and we had the uh, teams from all over the country come in to visit and they'd sit in on Sunday in the old building and we'd do the greeting and you know, 30 seconds in, all the GBCers would be sitting down like, I'm done talking to people, can we start? And all the Southern folk were walking around, meeting new people, being hyper-friendly. I was like, oh man, oh man. You guys were done about 20 seconds in, it's fine. Good morning, GBC. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, associate pastor. Grateful to be here with you this morning. Uh, some friends have asked, I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, don't normally have a buzzed head. On Christmas Eve, we discovered that one of my little ones had lice. And uh, some of you have been there. So we decided in an act of solidarity, all the boys in the family just bzz, just just took it. So um, it's, uh, everything is fine now. Is good. Before we get into the message, I, uh, two, two things I, I want to throw out there, particularly if you're new here at Groton Bible Chapel. Uh, the first thing is that here, uh, community is important. And Jason mentioned groups. He mentioned that those are launching in February, that the signups are, are online. You can jump in there. Do want to, again, just, just put that out there that over the past year, community has been a struggle for a lot of people. A lot of people have felt isolated. So with what is coming, you know, we have lots of opportunities, both in person and over Zoom, men's and women's Bible studies, small groups. We have a new marriage enrichment group here on Sunday morning. So people can come and just really invest in their marriage, going through a couple of books there. We have Bible overview, we have lots of different opportunities, care groups, divorce care, grief share. We'll hear more in the coming weeks. But to take a look at those things online and to think about, you know, God designed us to connect with each other, and then in the context of that, that we would learn and that we would grow. The second thing, and this is even more important, is that we are a people committed to the Word, that we constantly come back to the Word, that as we go through most of our sermon series, they are actually going through a book, and we do themes and topics here and there that as a people, we are committed to the Word of God. And, and for those of you who are perhaps new or new to the church and kind of outside looking in for us, we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that is assumed all throughout the Gospel of John, which is where we're gonna find ourselves this morning. That over the last 2,000 years, the best explanation, the most plausible explanation for all of the data, historical, scientific, sociological, is that Jesus is who he says he is, namely God in the flesh, come to die on a cross for you and for me, that after being resurrected, we could share in the life eternal that he offers. It's who we are. 
And as we approach the word tabiri, Anyabwile has a, has a great quote. He says, one of the reasons we value the word, we go to the word, he writes, our agenda becomes secondary. The preacher's agenda becomes secondary. God's agenda for his people takes center stage. It reorders our priorities. It directs us in the course that most honors him. The Lord himself proclaimed, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. Listening to the voice of Jesus as it is heard in his word is critical to following him, particularly church, as we encounter Jesus saying some hard things. And every now and again, you know, we get used to light and fluffy Jesus, right? Lamb petting Jesus. Every now and then, he throws out some tough stuff that we got to wrestle with. If you're going to follow him, you got to wrestle with it. And that's where we're going to be a little bit today in John 12. If you have your Bible, you can open up to John. It's towards the end. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you uh, end, find yourself in a book ending in Ian's, I-A-N-S, you've gone too far, turn back. Uh, while you do that, I'm gonna pray and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Lord, to gather as a people, both here and from afar, to look at your word together. Lord, pray for humility for soft hearts, for hearts willing to be challenged, for ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, would you bring clarity to whatever it is that through my own sinfulness confuse, may what is true stand and everything else fade. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Now, some of you know, I uh, grew up in a family in which pretty much every other guy other than me was associated with the military in some way. Uh, I have from every single branch of the military, two grandpas, three uncles, a father, a stepfather, a cousin, two brothers, uh, every branch of the military represented among them other than the Coast Guard, um, nothing but love for the Coast Guard, right? In fact, when, when they would gather together, uh, the Air Force is actually the one who would get made fun of. Uh, so uh, if you're Air Force, I love you, I'm just stating what would happen, I'm not speaking from experience. That's just what would happen. Uh, but I grew up amongst that, hearing lots of stories. I was a part of the Sea Cadets as a teenager, so would go to the base and drill once or twice a month. In high school before senior year, I uh, actually spent a week at the Naval Academy doing their summer seminar and just felt that God wasn't calling me to uh, the military. Uh, nonetheless, again, got small glimpses, heard lots of stories. And one of the things I have taken away, even from stories that people here have shared, is... Uh, is that when you're in the military, you become what, how do you say? Government property. <laughs> Particularly, you think about boot camp. When your time is not your own, when the details of your life are not your own, every corner of your life under examination, investigation by others. I've heard stories about the way drill instructors treat the way you keep your closet or make your bed. That every corner belongs to someone else. Now, we get to a passage in which Jesus makes it very clear that the best possible life that God would have for us is a life that actually doesn't belong to us, but that would instead belong to God. And while the military, particularly again in boot camp, might want every possible detail in order to prepare you to protect and serve your country, Jesus would ask for all of who you are, every little bit, corner and detail to prepare you for his kingdom. And that is a kingdom defined and marked by God's grace, love, beauty, mercy, justice, and glory. That's where we're going. Let's read. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, some Greeks were among those who went to worship at the festival. During festival, Passover, there are others. People would come from all over the, case, all over the place. And here we have Greeks coming. And that word Greek could mean actual Greeks. More often than not, it refers to non-Jewish people, Gentiles, everyone else, so to speak. Verse 21, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Got a little picture, Bethsaida, up north. Bam, there it is. For those of you who don't do maps very often, uh, they're in the back of your Bible if you've never checked, most likely, but there it is. They came to Philip because Philip, more, more likely than not, is actually a Greek name. Kind of interesting. People speculate that they came up to Philip because like, oh, wait a second, perhaps there's an outsider who's an insider. And so they come to Philip and they request of him, we want to see Jesus. Verse 22, so Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip 
went and told Jesus. Now, Jesus replied to them, verse 23, before we get into the response, I'll just point this out. Jesus does not acknowledge or respond to the circumstance they bring in any way. He completely pivots in a different direction. And you could imagine in a relationship with someone, if, if this happened to you regularly, it will probably drive you crazy. When you go to your, your, your spouse, your friend, your roommate, like, hey, I wanna do this, and for them to completely talk about something completely different. But you see, Jesus, and one of the realities as we approach scripture, as we come to God and wanna get to know him better, is that Jesus, God, the word, will often not answer the questions we have, but instead will provide answers to the questions we should be asking instead. We often go to the word, looking for this, and God instead redirects us. No, I want you here instead. And so Jesus replies to them, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Him talking about what will be coming very soon, his crucifixion, going to the cross. And this is the very first time in the book of John that he says the hour has come. Every single time up till now, he said, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come. You can imagine taking your kids, Disneyland, Six Flags, and we're not there yet, we're not there yet. This is the moment, we're here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Common metaphor familiar to both Greeks and Jews about how things can come out of death. Verse 25, the one who loves, and this is where we're gonna park for a moment, the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What a statement. What does it mean? Well, we see in Genesis, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Luke, a bunch of literature outside of the Bible that this hate-love dichotomy is often used as a Jewish idiom to show strong preference or priority. Doesn't necessarily mean antipathy. He ain't saying, I want you to wake up and I want you to hate everything. I want you to hate your shower. I want you to hate, I, I could go on, I'm not. Um, but, but, but nonetheless, he is talking about the priorities of our affections, the preferences of our life, the idols that might creep in. And nonetheless, it is a strong statement. This is a head-turning statement. This is a countercultural statement. And trying to capture kind of the oomph of that for today, want to lean in, kind of stole from how another pastor once talked about that Jesus is, is talking about the kind of love that God hates. When he says, those who love their life will lose it. Well, what kind of love is that? What does it mean to love this life? What exactly is Jesus cautioning against? He's cautioning his people against the love for the things in a world that will distract them. He's cautioning his people against the love for the possessions that will numb us and only leave us wanting more. Cautioning us against the love for unhealthy relationships that we allow to devour us and keep us down, a love for the wealth and power that gives us some faulty impression that we're more in control of things than we actually are, a love for the reputation seeking that builds our glory, a love for the social media following that makes us feel significant. The truth is if these things are our true love, if these things are the ultimate object of our affections, then that means God isn't. It means a creation has become more attractive than the creator. It means the gifts have become more desirable than the giver. And such a life absorbed in things that do not last, as Jesus points out here, absorbed in things that are temporary and fleeting, that that life itself will not endure. As Jesus says, it will be lost. Now I gotta hold two things in tension here because we do not teach works righteousness here. We believe we are saved by grace through faith and grace alone, by faith alone. You cannot earn salvation. And we hold that high and we preach that, but we cannot help but still taking seriously how much Jesus focuses in on the condition of our hearts. We gotta take stock of ourselves from time to time. 
So how do we stand against these kind of temptations, the distractions of this world, those things competing for our affections? Well, Jesus keeps pushing in here and provides in part a solution. In verse 26, he writes, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. That kind of last note, everything you do in this world often will, will get honor, glory from, from other people, from a coach, a teacher, a boss, a spouse, whatever it might be. But those things, while they will fade and be momentary, Jesus adds in on the end there that, the, that when you do this, you will get a glory that is eternal, one that comes from the Father. What is he saying here though? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. Point number two, followers don't just watch from afar, they walk with. They don't just observe, they join in. They get up close and personal, as the title of this sermon is. Now, if you're not a Christian, I believe this, this can still make sense. Even if you showed up first time, you never get into any of this Jesus stuff before, I believe that this can be kind of intuitive, that true followers don't just watch from afar, that people who actually want change and transformation in their life, it's not to just, but to actually jump in, to join in. And it happens in different areas of our life. If you wanna get fit, you don't just show up to the gym and stare at people working out. Please don't. If you wanna get fit, turning on someone exercising on YouTube and just watching ain't gonna do nothing for you. What happens when somebody who's fit or somebody you know that exercises regularly says, hey, come on a run with me. Do Pilates with me. Some of you are like, I say no. Um, <laughs> come lift weights with, again, not just watching from afar, walking with, joining in. We see this in relationships. We see this with kids. Some of you might remember growing up, it's one thing to watch your parents make dinner. It's another thing for them to say, hey, get in here and mix this. Go ahead and chop this up for me. Hey, here's the drill. Can you put this screw in? And when they destroy it, you fix it and you move on. We see it again with marriages, parenting. You wanna get better at marriage, you need to find people who are better at marriage than you and do life with them. When I counsel young couples and for premarital counseling and when I meet people who are very newly wed, I've reminded, I've said this to many people here, I've tried to remind them, you don't have what it takes to make a perfect marriage. You just don't. And anyone who's been married have a minute realizes that pretty quickly that it's hard. But what you need are people who've been through the valleys that you can go over, you can have dinner, and you can just, there's some things that can be taught, some things just need to be caught. You just see the way, you watch as you do life with them, the way that they treat you, like it'll make you a better spouse. You see the way people treat their parents, make you a better child. Watch the way people treat their kids, and you join in and make you a better parent. I've had many, many parents here that I've been able to do life with in part, and it has made me a better father as a result. In fact, there are some young men here who, when they've come over to visit, were surprised when I invited them to do bedtime with me and my boys, because I believe this. They come on in, we're gonna read the Bible, we're gonna sing a song, and then we're gonna, we're gonna pray goodnight. I don't know if these young men have any sort of example in their life of what it is to affectionately disciple your kids. I'm not saying my way is the only way, but they should see it. That's what it is to offer change and transformation. That's mentorship, that's discipleship. And Jesus says, where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. If this is true of all of these different kinds of relationships in our world, how much more so is it true for those who would follow Jesus? To be where he is, to spend time with him. Followers don't just watch, they walk. They don't just observe, they join in. Tony Evans, different context, but I still, I, I really like the way he put it. He said, the church is not meant for spectators. And I don't think Jesus was after spectators either. Jesus makes weighty claims to those who would follow him, but at the same time, he bears the weight of what's to come. He feels the weight of the cross. 
and he's trying to prepare his people for that. And it's coming. Jesus feels it. Verse 27, he says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. I had that little like inflection there because uh, um, one of the commentators pointed out the tense in this verb in the Greek. He's asking kind of a hypothetical question, associating it with what any other person might possibly say. But that is why I came to this hour, he continues. Some translations say, but this, because it's pointing forward to what he's about to say. Father, glorify your name. This is why he's come to this hour. This is why he's come to the cross. This is why he's done everything that he's done. This is why everything in his life, in his teaching, in his ministry has led up to this moment. Why? That the Father's name would be glorified. And a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and I'll glorify it again. We're gonna stop. We're gonna park here again for a moment because we get a glimpse of what I believe is one of the greatest themes in scripture. And yet, nonetheless, a theme kind of culturally offensive. Something that our own sensibilities might not take kindly to. The third point is this. Greatest goal of history, and that includes creation and the cross, is God's glory. Now you hear that. Some of you might kind of, wait, that's not, God's a bit egotistical. Not so much. We'll get there. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them, indeed I have made them. Isaiah 48, 9. I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise so that you will not be destroyed. Ezekiel 20, verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name so that it would not be profaned in the eyes of the nations that were living among in whose sight I had made myself known to Israel by bringing them out of Egypt. The references go on and on and on. You ask the question, wait a second, God does things for his glory as his primary objective? Isn't that a bit egotistical? And I would say not at all, and here's why. It would be if it were you or me. But that's because our glory always comes with a bit of selfishness, greed, and imperfection attached. Any glory you and I or anyone else project in this world comes at the cost of suppressing, trying to suppress those faults and failures and insufficiencies how quickly we've seen glory be stripped from famous people in our world, from athletes, celebrities, politicians. We've witnessed people like this fall and fall quickly in all of their glory from grace, become anathema for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes just a 10-year-old Twitter post is sufficient. How fickle is the glory of man? But God's glory is different. John Piper defines provides some some clarity here. The term the glory of God in the Bible, he, he writes, refers in general to the beauty of God's manifold perfections. It is an attempt to put into words what God is like in his magnificence and purity. It refers to his fullness of all that is good. The term might focus on his different attributes from time to time, like power and wisdom and mercy and justice, because each one is awesome in its magnitude and quality. But in general, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful being. I say this, if this world was all about your glory or my glory, it'd have infinitely more issues. But a world saturated by the glory of God is the best possible world. A world saturated by the glory of a God who is supremely holy infinitely good, completely just, perfectly merciful, unimaginably beautiful. It is precisely in a world in which the greatest goal and purpose is the glory of God. It is in that kind of world that the cross of Christ meets us, you and I, in a profound way. That the goodness and grace of God meets us in a transformative way. It's to God's glory that the criminal with a terrible past meets a God that has not given up on them. It is to God's glory that the addict meets a creator with arms wide open. It's to God's glory that the neglected child meets the warm love of a heavenly father. It is to God's glory that those exhausted by the trials and demands of work and relationships, school, teams, parenthood, that they would find rest. It is to God's glory and not ours that the unforgivable are forgiven 
that the hopeless are restored, that the foregone are transformed, and that the rebels, you and I, are redeemed. And this is a reminder, as Jesus says, up to this point, it's for God's glory. That as Christ looks to proclaim the glory of his father, that the world doesn't need any more of Zach's glory. The world doesn't need any more of a president's glory. It doesn't need any more of Taylor Swift's glory, LeBron James' glory. I would say the Patriots' glory, but their glory moved down to Tampa Bay last year. I'm a pass fan, I'm a pass. I, I, I had to work that in there. It doesn't need the glory of some building or school or team. What the world needs is what you and I are supposed to point them towards. It was Jesus's ultimate purpose, and that is the glory of God. It is the best possible world, the most satisfying possible life. Verse 29, keep reading. The crowd standing there heard it, all right? Because God had, had spoken down and said, I will, glor- I will continue to glorify my name. And said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him, referring to Jesus. But Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. The voice from heaven was a validation of what Jesus is trying to communicate. Now, Jesus says, is the judgment of this world with a cross in view. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Talking about the enemy, the adversary, the devil. As for me, verse 32, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Now this final statement here in verse 33 is so crucial. John adds an explanatory note. He actually does this throughout the book of John. It's kind of interesting that he'll, he'll say what happened and he'll add a little note that sees it in light of the end. And if any of you remember a few different movies, Sixth Sense, Book of Eli, I'm not gonna ruin the twists. If you haven't seen them, you're really late, but I won't ruin them. But if you go through that movie and you get to the end and, and you get this just story altering shift, you go back and you rewatch, it's almost like you're, you're watching a movie for the first time again. It's, you're seeing things you just didn't see before. And so John, having, knowing the ending, having been through it, is offering little explanatory notes, connecting the end with what is happening throughout the story. And John does that throughout his gospel. But here, this explanatory note is significant. How would the average person imagine that Jesus would carry out his claims? Jesus talks about being glorified. He says, judgment has come. He says, the evil one's gonna be cast out. I'm gonna draw everyone to myself. I'm gonna be lifted up, which by the way, that lifted up, synonymous with being exalted, position of praise and glory. How in the world would that happen? How would the average person think? If judgment was coming, if justice was coming, what comes to mind? What would be your mechanism for judgment, for justice? Would it involve violence, power, aggression? He says the ruler of this world, the greatest evil this world has known, it will be cast out. What would be your mechanism for fighting that battle? Would it involve power, violence, aggression? He goes on to say he would be lifted up, that he would draw people to himself. How would you expect someone to do that? In fact, what draws you to the people that you follow in this world? Some sort of power, prestige, influence, attractiveness, beauty, skill set? In case John's audience's mind were confused or wandered or thought that Jesus was coming to do something that he clearly was not, he adds on this note. All of this indicated the kind of death that he would die. We see in this moment that Christ would indeed go to battle and he would wield a powerful weapon, but his weapon would not be a sword or a spear. He would grip his weapon via metal stakes in his hands and his feet as it was attached to his back. Jesus set out to conquer and overcome with the cross. Point four. And he actually does it. Hebrews 2.14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. Boom, done. Second Timothy 1 verse 10. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death 
and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. All of this so that Paul, because Jesus didn't go to the cross and stay dead, he rises in victory over Satan, sin, and death so that, so that Paul, years later, could write to the church in Corinth. He would have the confidence to write such a bold statement that we as Christians could, could actually say this alongside with them. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where death is your victory, where death is your sting. I, I just imagine with what an massive enemy death is, with what a massive obstacle, fear-inducing presence it has in our life. Again, what it would take for Paul to write these words, the kind of assurance and confidence with the victory backing him that he would need to have. We had this kid when I was in sixth grade, his name was, was Eric, who very, very small for his age, but just sounded off and got into all sorts of fights. He just, he, he, he was a pain in, in the you know what. And, uh, but you never messed with him because he had two eighth grade twins who I don't know what the connection was, but they were like his henchmen. And he didn't mess with them because these two, while he was tiny for his age, they were giant for their age and they would always back him. And you just, you, you didn't touch him. I actually found out 10 years later, my wife in high school dated one of those twins. I gave her a hard time for that. Now, Eric and all of his sinfulness and selfishness and all of his pride and his issues, what we have here is Paul backed not by sinful, selfish, violent eighth grade boys, but Paul can say this to death backed by the victory of Christ on the cross. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? Our word that Gary explained a couple weeks ago for 2021 as a church is the word perspective. Jesus' words here in John 12 offer plenty of perspective particularly as we are called to not just watch him, but walk with him, as we are called not to love this life that the world might offer us, but rather embrace the one that God instead has in store for us. We are called to live out and proclaim the glory of God and fight the temptation to fight and proclaim our own glory. And as we look upon the self-giving love of our God and Jesus dying on the cross, as we hear him say to his followers, those who lose their lives, keep it. As we think about that love, we need to ask the question, what does it mean for you and for me, for us to pick up our own cross in our world today? As we experience the life, and I'm talking to the Christian, as we experience the life transforming grace, undeserved grace that God offers to a wicked, sinful, wretched, rebellious people like you and me, Perhaps we need to ask the question, what does it look like for us to extend that grace to our children, to our coworkers? Heck, even to our political opponents, if those are the words you would use. Many here would agree that our world is darkened by hate, by selfishness, greed, lust, and pride. And I think if we were willing to get a little bit more up close and personal with Jesus, that the best weapon we have isn't violence or pride. It isn't arrogance. It isn't rights, but a self-giving love and a life-transforming grace. That we might find it easier to fight like he did. Martin Luther King, whose, whose name marks tomorrow as a celebration in our country, he once said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And as Jesus goes to a cross, betrayed by someone whom he loved, put on a cross by a people whom he loved, by a creation that he came to die for, as he would look out on the people who detest him and ask God the Father to forgive them for they know not what they do. 
I think that as a people, we can think about what it looks like to love those who we perhaps might find detestable. One more thing on Martin Luther King, and I'll close. I shared this a couple years ago in a different sermon. In his book, Strength to Love, Martin Luther King shares about a message that he gave to his black congregation. And at one point during the civil rights movement, a lot of violence, a lot of people in his church had been hurt, injured, a lot of people had attempted to kill him twice. And in a sermon, he preached to his church and made it very, very clear that we're not to respond with hate and that we're not to respond with violence because the goal ultimately isn't just our rights. The goal is we wanna win their hearts. Talking about all the people who had oppressed them. You think about how powerful that weapon was to bring light into a dark world and not to try to fight darkness with darkness. That ultimately as verses 34 through 36 say, we're not gonna get to them, but that we would be sons of light and daughters of light in a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, May we receive whatever challenge your word affords us as individuals today. Lord, I think about the areas of my own heart where affections have been torn, distracted. Lord, where false hopes have crept in. Where things in this world that will not last perhaps offer a bit more short-term excitement. Pull me away. God, from just the beauty of your plan, purpose, and affections that we see in Scripture, Lord, may we lean in to who you are, to what you've done, and to what you want for us, knowing that the cost may be great, but the prize is well worth it. Lord, go with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, in, in closing, some final words. If, you, uh, if you're new with us, welcome glad you're here. If you're online, you can click I'm new, connect with us there. You can stop by our welcome center. But one more important thing, welcome aboard is going to be starting back up in February. Many people have gone through welcome aboard. It starts the very first Sunday in February. You meet our pastors and our staff. You learn a ton about who we are. And if you started joining us in the past year, it was shut down for a long time. Encourage you on the website, you can sign up under the I'm new tab or under the next steps tab. And we'd love to see you there, meet and spend some time with you. With that church, remember, we're not dismissed, but to the glory of God, you're sent. We'll see you next Sunday.